Oh, there, Philippians 4, 10 through 13 is our text. And I hope it's an encouragement to you. It's a word of exhortation. And uh, you'll see in a minute why. Philippians 4, 10 through 13 is our text for today. It's good to be back. It's good to be back. And God has moved in this trip. It's fired people up. It's changed people's perspectives. It, this trip has done everything we prayed for it to do in people's lives. Um, and so this text came to me because, uh, just a little background before we read it, I was reading this and just meditating on it and seeing how Paul, this, you know, and I'll explain later, uh, and I'll repeat myself by saying this, that this was in a, a letter that he wrote in prison and he's rejoicing greatly at the concern that the Church of Philippi is showing him. We go to this trip to share our concern for brothers and sisters out in the Dominican Republic that are working and laboring in situations that some of us are just foreign to. You know, we live in America, we live in a very developed nation, and poverty over there looks a lot more different than it does here. So it gives you good perspective on how to come back home and really appreciate what we do have, you know? Um, and so, but let's get into the text and we'll start in verse 10 of Philippians chapter four, all the way to 13. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. God, we know that this verse in verse 13 has been used a lot. It's been put on bracelets. It's been put on shirts. Uh, we're very well acquainted with this verse, but God, would you help us to understand what it means in context to your word? Help us to filter out the secular way of seeing this verse that we would be encouraged. God, I pray for anyone suffering here that they would be encouraged. I pray for those that are in abundance, that they will be encouraged. I pray for those, God, that are longing, God, for an answer, they will be encouraged. I pray, I pray for those who might even be struggling with paying their rent. I pray that they will be encouraged. God, wherever we are, whether in abundance or in need, we need you. And so would you help us in this text be encouraged to you be the glory in Jesus' name, amen. So the book of Philippians, to give you some background, it was authored around 61 AD. It's one of Paul's prison epistles where he was under Nero's rule and he was put into prison for preaching the gospel. If you remember in Acts chapter 16, uh, he visited Lydia on his second missionary journey who converted to faith. And then if you remember the Philippian jailer, you remember that story where they were in prison and then they were singing hymns, and then the Lord actually freed them from prison, and the Philippian jailer was afraid. 
of what happened, and then he came to repentance. That happened in the area of Philippi. So this church, if you look at verse 1 of Philippians 1.1, you'll notice that this church was well established. They had overseers and deacons in this church. So this church was very well off and very resourceful. You also see in Philippians 4, 15 through 18, if you turn there with me, go back to chapter 4, if you went to chapter 1, Philippians 4, 15 through 18, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Then he says in verse 18, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So this resourceful church was in full support of Paul's ministry. And Paul was encouraged once again by their concern for him. So this is a church that has a lot of resources that's telling Paul, we're supporting you. We're concerned for you. And he's saying yes and he meant thank you for your support. This book, uh, the book of Philippians, could be called Joyful Even When Suffering. Joyful Even When Suffering. This book is about Christ in the life of the mind and life of the believer and how God can maintain us, those of us of faith. It shows us that Christ is our strength and joy. It reminds us that our strength and joy come from Christ and not ourselves, which the world tells you. That your strength, your abilities, your determination, self-determination, they talk about that. They talk about self-advancement. They talk about, you know, you're at the center of your success. Your success is totally contingent on you. But the gospel says otherwise. I don't know about you, but I've had things in my life where I went through things and I would look back and like, how did I get through that? Amen? How did I get through this without walking away broken and destroyed? Circumstances that should have paralyzed me. Circumstances that should have made me not even come today to the service. Circumstances that would have pushed me to blame God. Why did I suffer? Why did I lose? Why did, why suffer? Why lose? But we know that going through that in one Staying together, going through that and staying together has to come from something outside of ourselves. And if you don't know here today what that is, I'm here to tell you it's Jesus who keeps us together when the world sees us as potential broken in the world. This is a sermon I preached in Santiago to believers out in the field doing the work of the Lord. And this address was meant to encourage and exhort them to remember that we are concerned for them because we are praying for them. We are there to love them, which this trip was about. It was to remind them and us today, this, this sermon, this message, that those of us who are out in the field of the world ought to be content, no matter the circumstances. So our outline for today, number one, the concern from the church in Philippi, which we see in verse 10, the concern. 
Second point, the contentment Paul found in Christ. Verse 11. And then third, the circumstances Paul was able to overcome. Verses 12 through 13. So the concern, verse 10, the contentment, verse 11, the circumstances Paul was able to overcome in verses 12 through 13. Paul begins by saying, I rejoice in the Lord greatly. Now, when speaking of rejoicing, Paul talks about joy. He's talking about gladness. He's talking about cheerfulness. And in Paul's mind and heart, however, this rejoicing, we understand that what he's talking about here is not dependent on external circumstances. Examples in scripture from Paul, Romans 5, 2 to 5, he says, through him, Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And he says, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, he says, check it, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God, and he's giving us the cause, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So Paul was able to rejoice in suffering. He was able to be glad to have joy. This is the Christian faith. This is authentic Christianity. You can laugh in the midst of destruction. The believers in Hebrews, they rejoiced at the plundering of their property. Now, some people are saying, come on, Lowe's, really? Can I really rejoice in the midst of bankruptcy, in the midst of a divorce, in the midst of mess in my life? Yes, you can. Because, they, and I'll get to this later, I'm jumping ahead. But Romans 12, 12, Paul also said, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. 2 Corinthians 3 through 10, he told the Corinthian church, we put no obstacle in anyone's way. 2 Corinthians 6, 3 through 10, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. He has rejoiced, Paul has, no matter the circumstances. So the rejoicing Paul is talking about here and has spoken about in other letters is a joy and gladness 
not contingent on external circumstances. This very letter is an example of this. Paul's writing this letter while he's in prison. Philippians 2.17, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. He's writing this in prison. Philippians 4.4, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Always, meaning even when I'm in prison, even when I have nothing, even when I'm about to be killed, rejoice. Indeed, the joy Paul had in the Lord was not dependent on external circumstances, but what caused it was their concern for him. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. See, our joy is not dependent on circumstances, but it's nice to be shown some concern. Right? I need you to be concerned for me, and my joy could come because you encourage me. Encouragement goes a long way. I don't know about you, but I don't like being around a lot of people that constantly are complaining. Man, you, you, it's, bro, can you encourage? There's a lot of good things happening too, right? It's easy to point out, and I'm very negative. I'm a half glass, and the glass is broken. It can't even hold water type of person. That's me. But I, I need encouragement. But my joy is not dependent on it. God will encourage me even when you don't. But it's nice to get encouragement sometimes. And this is what's causing Paul's joy here. They were greatly concerned for him. He says, you have revived your concern for me. The, talk, the church at Philippi revived their concern for Paul. Their concern, the word bloomed again, is what the word revive means. And it caused his rejoicing to happen. This points out the importance of concern for those in ministry and how encouragement goes a long way. You know how many pastors have resigned in the past two years? I have five people I know personally in ministry that left. Me and my wife were just talking about someone who mentally couldn't hold it together. People in ministry need encouragement. The rejoicing of the believer should not be dependent on anything. Even the concern and encouragement of others when consideration is shown and motivation is given, it can cause rejoicing. And it caused it for Paul here in our text. This was important to Paul and should be essential to us today. This is one of the main reasons for our yearly trip to the Dominican Republic. We go to share concern and support for local churches that are laboring and working there. One brother who's in ministry there took us to his house. And his house, the toilets didn't work. He's just like, yeah, it don't work. And then he's, he's rejoicing. I don't know about you, but that's a bad day. <laughs> when our toilets don't work, we get it done. It got to get fixed. I'm not going outside, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> that was normal for him. It wasn't a big deal for them over there. 
Sharing our concerns and reminding believers that they are not alone can go a long way. And by encouraging believers there, Proverbs 11.25 reminds us that, and it says, whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters himself will be watered. Do you know that when you encourage someone, encouragement comes back to you? Because when they're down and you're up, you bring them up with you. And then when you're down and they're up, they bring you up to them. Being that Paul was in prison, it may have been difficult for the church to help Paul. He said, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Paul was encouraged even while in prison. And it came from a concern. His joy was sparked by the concern that the church of Philippi showed him. But his rejoicing was not dependent on it. The joy, not dependent on external circumstances, maintains the contentment that Paul experienced here in our text. But practically speaking, how can we experience what Paul experienced here in our text? How can we get to this place where Paul was? He actually tells us in the previous verses, verses 8 through 9 of Philippians 4. Philippians 4, 8 through 9, he says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. The God of peace will be with you. Paul practiced thinking of things that were honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. And this is how one can maintain contentment in a Christian life. Paul was joyful because of their loving concern for him, but his contentment was not dependent on it. Second point, the contentment in verse 11, he says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned that whatever situation I am to be content. Paul tells the church that his rejoicing over their concern was not out of need. It is not conditional. Instead, it comes from what he has learned. He said, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, he tells them, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. He's not telling them like, yo, like, just do this and see what happens. He's saying, do this because this is what I've been doing. I'm in jail, and I'm telling y'all, I don't need anything. Paul's in prison, which would communicate his need to be free. I don't know about you, if I was locked up, get me out of here. He's saying, no, I don't need to get out of here. I don't need anything. Then he says, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. By content, Paul was speaking of self-sufficiency. Paul is speaking of having enough in whatever situation. When encouraging the church at Corinth, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12.10, he said, for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 
He told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 8, but if we have food and clothing with these things, we will be content. There are two types of contentment in the world and even in the church, sadly. Number one, a, a self-sufficiency that is self-powered. Self-powered contentment. This type of contentment does not think of God as enough. Do you know that you're falling into sin as a result of thinking that you are enough? That you are the object of pleasure? That you are the object to be satisfied? The reason why you're dipping into sin is because God is not enough. You're at the center of the need to pleasure, the need to satisfy. So contentment there is dependent on what pleases self which is actually a contradiction. Because when you go out and sin, you're saying that you don't have enough within yourself. It's funny because people say, well, I'm just gonna do me. You hear that, right, out in the street? I'm just gonna do me, yeah. But doing you means that you're not enough in you. That's why you go out and do other things, to try to satisfy something that only God can satisfy. Well, I know what his word says, but I'm going to go do me. Well, self-sufficiency isn't really self-sufficiency. You're deceived into thinking that you are enough. Self-contentment leads to destruction. There's a way that seems right unto a man, but then the end thereof is death. Do what God says to do. Amen? Save yourself the trouble. I know it feels good at the moment. I know homie looks good right now. I know she looks good right now. Obey the word of God. Obedience will produce good fruit. I was thinking the other day of Tim and Deb and their wedding and everything. I'm sorry, I, I told them, I didn't tell them I was going to do this. But I was reflecting on their marriage and just walking with this couple and seeing like the conversations we were having. And I, I was thinking, wow, they've been together for so long. I was like, yo, they should have been married a long time ago. But they waited. And they took the process to obey and to sit under the scriptures and say, we want to do this the way God wants us to do it. And they're reaping benefits from that. They're breaking curses in the sense that they're not repeating Whatever it was that the whatever it is that the world is repeating, really, the world doesn't think covenant marriage is something you should do. But they're obeying and they're reaping benefits from that. Right now, we're walking with another couple. They're deciding to sit under the scriptures. What does God have to say about being together? They're going to reap benefits from that. But if you do something disobediently, you'll reap destruction. And it comes from thinking you're enough. You're not enough. Christ is. Which goes to the second one. Self-sufficiency that is powered by self destroys. But self-sufficiency that is powered by the new self is powered by Christ. Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Paul talks about this in this letter. Philippians 2, 12 to 13. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, 
He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Then he says in verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God's work empowers the believer's contentment. God's work in us is what our contentment relies on. Our contentment does not rely on anything in the world. It relies on God empowering us. Which is why earlier when I said we should have left situations broken and destroyed, God kept you together. He empowered you to go through what you went through. How do you think Paul dealt with beatings, imprisonments, and hardships, and riots? God was powering Paul to go through it. Paul spoke of this to Timothy again in 1 Timothy 6, 6-8. For godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. So how was Paul able to be content in whatever situation? The previous verses told us, like I already told you. But there's something that you have to think about when it comes to what's true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, that whole list about what to think about. What is the epitome of truth? God. Who's most honorable? God. Who's the greatest example of purity, if not the source of it? God. Who's lovelier than God? Who's worthy of being commended? God. Who's most excellent? God. Who's worthy of praise? God. Think about him. God doesn't change. So practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. God isn't, he isn't less or more true than who he is. Do you know that? When God loves you, it's not that he loves you more or less. When he says he loves you, he loves you, and that's it. His love for you can't grow. God can't become more loving. God doesn't change. So if God is true, God is honorable, God is just, God is pure, God is lovely, God is commendable, God is excellent, God is worthy of praise, think on these things. Because circumstances make it feel like there is no truth. Circumstances make it feel like things aren't lovely. Things aren't excellent. Things aren't worthy of praise. But God is. God is. God doesn't change. So whether you're in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labor, sleepless nights, and hunger, always rejoice because God is always good. You see, this is the secret of Christian contentment, which is no secret to us today. What circumstances have we allowed to add or take away from our contentment in Christ? Do we know how to be brought low? Do we know how to abound without losing our contentment in Christ? How can a believer face plenty, hunger, abundance, and need? Paul tells us in verses 12 to 13 in our last point, the circumstances. Verses 12 and 13 read, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, 
abundance and need. There are two things that Paul knows when it comes to circumstances. He knows how to be brought low and how to abound. Then he also faces four things that he learned when facing situations that would cause a believer to think and feel like Christ is not enough. The first, and what and so, the two things that Paul knows and has been well acquainted with, is that he says he knows how to be brought low. It could also be said, I know how to be abased. I know how to be disgraced and humiliated. I don't know about you, but that doesn't feel good. Paul says he is well acquainted with being brought low. He understands and knows what it's like to be disgraced and humiliated. Paul knows what it's like to be brought to that level of disgrace and embarrassment. Yet, he says, he can still be content. What have we done when faced with disgrace and being humiliated ourselves? You see, situations can test someone's patience. Amen. Matter of fact, I'm going to say some people know how to test patience. Amen. You can say amen in the church. If you're not saying amen, maybe you're one of those people that are testing somebody else's patience. Situations can test someone's patience. Situations sometimes can press you to defend yourself. The missionaries we've supported, uh, you know, share with me how there were people in their lives who sought to come after them, who sought to test their patience, who sought to humiliate them. And one of the missionaries said something so profound to me. It was so simple. I was sitting there in the car and they were just ministering to me. Though They, didn't, they, didn't, they just didn't know how, how incredible it was of what they said. They said, we say nothing. We believe that God will defend us. And I was just like, dang. But you can trust the Lord. Even when the world and your friendships and everything is loudly against you. Saying things. Making you feel humiliated and embarrassed. And you can sit there and say nothing. And trust the Lord. In other words, be more like Jesus. Who was brought more lower than Christ? Who was more disgraced and humiliated than Christ? Isaiah 53, 7 says he was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. See, this is why I don't like Jesus sometimes. I'm telling you, it's tough. Because he has given us the example on what we are not to do. Because we are not greater than our master, when we face times when we are disgraced and humiliated, we can rejoice. Because in going through these things, we can learn to be more like him. John 15, 20, he told his disciples, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So whether humiliated or disgraced, Paul could rejoice because what mattered most to Paul was God. 
Paul knew God to be good enough even when he was brought low. But then there's a second thing that he knows and has been well acquainted with, which is to abound. Paul knew how to be content even when having more than enough, which is what abound means. Could also be said, I know how to have more than enough without losing contentment in Christ. Your stuff can distract you. The stuff that we have, nice cars, air conditioning, praise God. Paul is saying that he's well acquainted with having more than enough. And he's saying he doesn't lose sight of Christ, which seasons of abundance can do to us. Having more than enough is a dangerous place. Do you know we do not need anything in the world when it comes to eternity? But we will always need Christ. <laughs> Have you allowed abundance to rob you of your need and contentment in Christ? Having more than enough, a more than enough life can cause someone to ask, why do I need God at all? My life is good. Why am I going to go to the church and feel guilty? Listen, you can have a more than enough life and be broke before the Lord. Psalm 49, 16 to 20, the psalmist warns, be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed. And though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. And then Psalm 49, 20 says, man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like beasts that perish. See, you can have a more than enough life and yet perish like beasts. Abundance can kill and rob us. Paul understood this. When he, when, when he experienced seasons of more than enough, he understood he still needed Christ. I still need you, Lord. I need you now just as much as I needed you before. Abundance can rob us from that. Paul knew to remain in need of Christ even with a more than enough life in the world. Paul knew how to be brought low. He knew how to abound by not allowing these circumstances to take away his joy and contentment. And he did it by thinking about who God is. God is true. God is honorable. God is just. God is pure. God is lovely. God is commendable. God is excellent, worthy of praise. This is the secret of going through trials. Jeremiah Burroughs in his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, which my brother Calvin put me on to, Jeremiah Burroughs said this, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. In any and every circumstance, God's wise and fatherly disposal is enough for us. The secret of Christian contentment is the truth of God's self-sufficiency and how he strengthens us through all things. So the truth of God's self-sufficiency, which we are to think upon, which never changes, is to be practiced. Have you been practicing contentment? Practicing about thinking about how good God is. 
And especially when life is tight and things are crazy, have you thought about how good God is? God, you're good. I've seen people do it, man. I've seen people with sickness. I've seen people at the hospice. I've seen people ready to die saying that God is good. God, you are good. God, you are gracious. God, you are merciful. Even though my own body's falling apart and I'm sick. And the doctors are saying, I'm going to die in a week. You're still good. My rent can't be paid this month. God, you're still good. My family left me. I'm left alone. God is still good. You don't change. You are with me and you are for me. He doesn't change. When you're in that situation, there's another reality that we see, another truth, is that God strengthens us when faced with circumstances. Contentment is fired up by God's strength in us. Paul knew God to be good and enough even when abounding, even when suffering. So I want to close with four things that Paul learned because of the secret. And I want to begin again by continuing Jeremiah Burroughs, where he continues to say it in his, in his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. He said this, many men think that when they are troubled and have not got contentment, it is because they have but a little in the world. And if they had more in the world, then they would be content. That is just as if man were hungry and to satisfy his craving stomach, he should gape and hold open his mouth to take in wind. And then should think that the reason why he is not satisfied is because he has not gotten enough wind. No, the reason is because the thing is not suitable to a craving stomach. When you're hungry, you can, bring, you can breathe in all the air you want. You're not satisfying that hunger. That's exactly what people in the world do every day. They think that by taking things in the world into themselves, satisfying themselves, that they're going to satisfy that craving, longing heart that's craving, you know, for the creator. But in every and every circumstance, Paul says, I have learned the secret of facing plenty. He understood that when he was in a season of plentifulness, that the world was not suitable to satisfy. That even when he had a more than enough life, that was not enough for him. Paul could remember that though he had enough to feed his stomach, it couldn't satisfy the cravings of his soul. Because there's something in the soul that only God is meant to satisfy. Jesus spoke about this in John 6, 25 to 27. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, talking to Jesus, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set the seal. Don't work for the food that perishes. Work for the food of eternal life. The secret, God being all we need, is learned by remembering that we are not to work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. That is why the prosperity gospel got it wrong. 
It says that you have a curse on you if you lack resources. If your bank is empty, which if we're honest, well, at least some of us from the hood are honest, we know that going to the Mac machine sometimes was a challenge. Some of y'all are like, what do you mean? Well, I remember seasons in my youth where I had a lot of money, I was working a good job, but I spent so much that I wasn't keeping track of what was in my bank account. And so going to the Mac machine to draw money out, I would hope and pray there was money in there. That was our lives. We didn't keep track. If $10 came out, it was a good day. People think that in situations in our lives, even in the church, that an empty bank account or not having things in the world means that we are not blessed. I was a believer when that happened. But I grew up in a home, but I was never told how to do any finances. I was learning as I went. Then when I got married and me and my wife were working together, and then when kids came into the picture, then I started thinking, okay, now I got to be smarter with my money. I got kids to feed, a family to. These are things that I should have been told before I got married. But then I heard this prosperity gospel saying, if you give all this stuff, you'll get all this stuff back. It don't work that way. My stuff is not definitive of my soul, of my standing with God. My standing with God is dependent upon what Jesus did. And it, it, thank God that he was gracious to me even when I squandered my money. I was still blessed. I was still adopted. I was still his. In any and every circumstance, I knew I needed God just as much as I needed him the day I got saved. So in seasons of, of plenty in my life, I've learned also to remain desperate for God. He says, I have learned the secret of facing hunger. Hunger can make someone ask the question, where is God? Many don't understand how going hungry can make people do things to survive. Hunger will make you do some crazy stuff. Hunger can make good people go wrong. But Paul knew how to be hungry and yet content in Christ. Paul understood that even when hungry for food that perishes, it is better to be hungry and content in Christ than to fill that hunger by sinful means. C.S. Lewis says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hungry. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such thing as water. If I find myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. See, even Paul, when he was hungry, he remembered that even though he's hungry, he is to be content. I have learned the secret of facing abundance. Abundance is not suitable to satisfy our lives. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? 
Abundance can kill you. In fact, Jesus warned about this in Luke 12, verses 13 to 21. So it's better to have your soul than the whole world, which Jesus gives to us when we become believers. The secret of facing abundance is that true abundance comes from belonging to Christ and that having Christ is all we need no matter what we lack in the world. And lastly, Paul says, I have learned the secret of facing need. Facing need. Need is confused in our culture. What we need is confused with what we want. That's a problem. What do we need? For Paul, he said, not that I am speaking of being in need, when he looked like he needed to be free. Paul had no need, even in prison, because Christ was there with him. So the secret of facing need is that the Christian has all they need in Christ. Whether you're being brought low, whether abounding, whether you're facing plenty, whether you're hungry or facing times of abundance, God is good through it all. So Paul concludes by saying, I can do all these things, all things through him who strengthens me. These missionaries needed to hear this um, because ministry has such a way of going up and down, especially in their environment. They're ministering to people that don't have anything. And so sometimes when you don't have anything, it feels like God is not with you. What if we didn't have the sound system we have with this building or the resources? Could we say we're still blessed? What is it that you want God to do for you? What is it that you want God to do? Is it a job? Is it a marriage? Well, if you don't have those things, would you still see yourself content in God? Well, man, I, I'm barely making it with my bills. By the end, I'm done paying bills. I only have $100. You have Jesus. What if I don't have it? You have Jesus. What if I'm hungry? You have Jesus. What if I have this whole new house and everything's working good? Don't let that distract you from your need for Jesus. You see, whether you're hungry or facing plenty, we all need the Lord. So listen, saints, I'll, you know, thank God for our church. Our church is blessed. We have solid people in our church. We have a lot of good things happening. We're growing. God is blessing us financially. But don't get it twisted. Money, buildings, this floor, whatever it is, favor from the city, who cares? If there's 10 people left here next year and I have to work a full-time job because of it, amen. I ain't worried about it. I don't mind going back to the world and supporting my wife and family. She got a dope job too, so I'm good, <laughs> by the way. I think I can get away with the part-time, you know. But sometimes, what dictates our joy? Is it the things, it, am I happiest when things are favorable? When things are going my way? 
Am I like all happy and giddy? Yo, things are good, revival's happening. Or can I still have revival when life feels like destruction? You can do that, saint. Because God doesn't change. God is always good. So if you feel in your heart pain and agony because you don't have what you feel like you should have, or things are falling apart in your life, God is still good. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Let's follow Paul's example, saints. Let's do that for his glory. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We ask that you would help us with what is called Christian contentment, a contentment not contingent on the world. We know, God, that there's a longing in our hearts that only you can satisfy. So teach us to practice on thinking upon you who is lovely, good, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. So that when we face need or abundance, whether we're hungry or full, you are always good through it. May that be our mantra or the flag we wave in this world that always changes. May we stick to you, God. May we plant our feet in the truth of the gospel that we would not waver, that we would be steadfast. Help us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.